नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारवक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा सो एज यू गाइस नो आई हैव ऑलरेडी स्पोकन विद कोल्डमैन ह्यूज अबाउट रिपेरेशंस एंड अफर्मेटिव एक्शन इन अमेरिका बट टुडे आई सो दिस इज गोइंग टू बी अ सीरीज ऑफ कन्वर्सेशंस आई एम गोइंग टू ट्राई एंड रीच आउट टू एज मेनी वॉइसेस इन अमेरिका फ्रॉम डिफरेंट पर्सपेक्टिव्स ऑन दिस सब्जेक्ट सो आई वाज लाइक व्हाट डू आई टॉक टू राजीव अबाउट आई कीप टॉकिंग टू राजीव अबाउट साइंस आई वाज लाइक नो राजीव you're going to talk about something else so today rajib is representing the entire brown community of the united states of america and is going to talk about the brown perspective when it comes to affirmative action welcome buddy mm all right well i i need to impersonate a lib then cuz i'm not <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so you're the rare brown guy who's not uh, a democrat uh, or or uh, who's not uh, left leaning so so how does it feel to be the minority inside the brown community Mm, mm, I don't know. I, I don't I'm not much in touch with the brown community, but um <laughs> you know, I, so I, I'll say I'll put it this way though. Um I do think uh yeah, most of the immigrants uh people that are raised in India or, or whatever, you know, subcontinental country, they are democrats, but look, they're immigrants, they're trying to survive in this country, make their way, and um you know, they have some simple ideas of which party is the good party for them, but it's not you know they got they got they got to pay their rent or their mortgage run their business you know survive in this country i think it's different when it comes to people raised in this country uh, indian americans are uh, well there's not that many pakistani or bangladesh americans so i'm just going to say indian americans but you know everything that i say about indian americans is also true about them um i- even more so it, they're pretty rabid democrats the ones that are raised here pretty liberal and um they're actually pretty well represented in dc uh in um democratic staff but i mean even among republicans there's a lot of them now i mean hey, we have two indian americans running uh for president right now vivek ramaswamy and nikki haley so uh, out of you know the dozen or so republicans that have announced so it's a very political community uh, very politically active and uh, tends to lean left liberal you know people like um aoc's chief of staff was an indian american tech bro bengali dude a democratic socialist he made his money from stripe uh, eventually had left done, done did other things you have pramila jayapal these people uh, they're very visible visible community now wasn't 10 years ago what definitely not 20 years ago um and uh, it's visible on the left uh, institutionally culturally the, the leading voices there are minority obviously who are republican you know entrepreneurs business people you know vivek ramaswamy himself would be in this category uh, he was an entrepreneur and a business person uh but they tend not to be as numerous i'd say like a 3 to 1 ratio maybe you know yeah 3 to 1 ratio seems like right for indian americans yes yeah, so last i checked the usual uh, trend is 80 to 85% of people of indian origin at least uh, lean dem- towards the democratic party now yeah. uh, i think the trump kind of changed that very interestingly some indians voted for the republican party for the first time under trump which was very interesting i found that interesting Well I mean he's a well-known business person you know he's a well-known he's a, a known individual also I do think um Trump was less Christian explicitly uh than some of the previous uh, so I I think one of the issues that Indian Americans in particular have is like only a minority are Christian a very small minority are Christian uh, you notice that some of the most prominent Indian American Christians are Republican you know like Dinesh yeah, D'Souza Dinesh D'Souza Yeah, it comes to mind, but there are others, you know, in the Malayali, uh, you know, community, there's a lot more Republicans and I think it's because they had a way traditionally to interface with the Republican Party. Now that the party is becoming more secular, like less explicitly Christian, 
I think it's easier for Indian Americans to culturally fit in. You know, uh, there would be a time when it was a much more evangelical party, and in many places it still is. Um, but that if you're a Hindu, a conservative Hindu, and you show up at some Republican Party meeting, they'll want to like pray and you know pray over you because you worship demons, stuff like that. You know, so yeah, you're going to hell. Uh, so. Now let's talk about this whole affirmative action uh, thing. So the Supreme Court basically gave a majority ruling six to three um, in favor of uh, the representatives of the Asian community. I think it was uh, two universities in particular that were fighting the case, Harvard and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, if I remember correctly. Correct me yeah, if UNC. I'm wrong. Yeah, UNC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it. Yeah. So these... So it was voted in favor of the group that was uh, had filed a petition against this. Now, uh, now the, it's a very good point that you raised that the Indian community or the, the brown community in general has been leaning Democrat. But now when it comes to this affirmative action, the, the president uh, of the United States of America, uh, where, when it comes to this particular incident, which is uh, the Supreme Court ruling, has uh, said some very interesting uh, things about this entire uh, uh, ruling by the Supreme Court. Um, now, where, where does the brown community stand on this now? How, do, how does the brown community look at this particular issue? Yeah, so I, I think that there's two, there's multiple ways to, to figure this out. First of all, Asian American activists, professional activists are very pro-affirmative action. But that's because they're activists first and Asian second and American mm -hmm. third. No, just, just. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, so, uh, they, you know, they're, they're like a wall of support, uh, for affirmative action and any liberal program because, you know, they have solidarity with their fellow activist class. So that's a, you know, so you have these Asians writing op-eds about how affirmative action is actually good for Asians. Um, it's great that like, you know, uh, David Wu had to go to Georgia Tech, uh, instead of Harvard. Like, yeah, that's great. I mean. Maybe he had to go, but like this is ridiculous to say it's good, you know. Like, you know, it's like you know making a sacrifice for this like racial project that you have on the left, right? So, the activists now the majority. I mean, I don't know about Indian Americans tend to be more supportive of affirmative action. Last I checked, than say Chinese or something like that. But I think there has been a move on this issue as people have become more conscious of it because Indian Americans are Asian American according to the census, and it's quite clear that you know they're subject to the same issues um as Koreans, Chinese, Japanese, etc. You know? And so um, you know, when a university is 10% Indian American, they gotta watch themselves, right? You know, when Harvard Medical School is 10% subcontinental, whatever, like Indian, Indian American, mostly Indian American, not very foreign students, um, they have to, you know, watch themselves because it's very visible. And um I think uh, a lot of Indian Americans like Asian Americans, uh they don't see they don't believe this is fair which i don't think it's fair either but it is what it is in american culture uh right now for asians they still lean left on a whole aside from vietnamese uh, who are very anti-communist uh, but asians as a whole lean left uh, indian americans the most left and i think that is a legacy because it's mostly an immigrant community uh, most people were not born or raised here mostly an immigrant community and i think it's a perception that the republicans are anti-immigrant and christian um, the Christian part is diminishing. Anti-immigrant part is remaining, you know, so there's those things that are happening. But I think on a lot of the social issues, from what I've seen, immigrant Indians are much more moderate. Um, and as far as affirmative action goes, I, mean, I don't think they're enthusiasts necessarily. Um, and, you know, most Americans do not. So a majority of Americans do not support affirmative action. Majority of Americans supported that um, supported that outcome 
of the case. Last, I just saw a poll yesterday. Seventy-five percent of Republicans did supported the, supported the overturning of affirmative action in that case. Uh, students for fair, uh, you know, fair admissions versus Harvard. Uh, about fifty-eight percent of independents and twenty-six percent of Democrats supported it. Now, who are those twenty-six percent of Democrats? Uh, they tend to be um, actually uh, aside aside from um, you know. Uh, Basically, aside from the core white liberals and blacks, there are Democrats, working class Latinos, uh, you know, Asian Americans, all sorts of other groups, uh, older, you know, union people. Most of those people are more socially conservative or moderate. I think that's where the 26 percent comes from. I think Asian Americans would be part of that 26 percent, even if they are Democrat. So are uh, Democratic voters uh, from what I can, um, you know, what I've seen, what I can tell. So I think. Uh, yeah, um, if you if you go online, you see Indian American political commentators and activists um, on the left, kind of you know saying certain things. But uh, you know, they are their audience is the left, not not other brown people. You know, that's what I would say. So I mean, let's let's keep let's make it concrete real quickly. Not about affirmative action because Ro Khanna is actually I actually do like him for a Democrat. He's very principled. He's stood up for civil liberties and other thing. Ro Khanna, representative from I mean, he's San Jose area in California, right? Democrat. And he's a big deal in California now. He, he might be senator or governor someday. Probably not senator, because I, I, I think, like, you know, again, racial quotas, I think they'll, honestly, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I think California is going to have Latinx senators for a while. Um, but in any case, uh, Ro Khanna uh, criticized Vivek Ramaswamy when Vivek got into an argument with a black American, um, you know, television, like, uh, news host. And it was about... Um, the fact that there's an argument that Asian Americans should be grateful to black Americans because the black Americans are the reason the immigration laws changed in 1965. Okay. That's wrong. Okay. I mean, I can say it's a lie, but that implies malicious intent. That is totally wrong. Uh, the civil rights act. In fact, civil rights movement was actually the end product of a bunch of different changes in American society over 30 to 40 years. Uh, going from the native American race relations in the 1910s and 1920s, uh, but even as early as the 1920s, after the 1924 uh, National Origins Act that limited immigration, uh, Jewish Americans in particular were actually very active in reforming the immigration uh, system for obvious reasons. Um, they were they were disadvantaged. A lot of their um, family uh, and extended community. Um, their ethnic group was uh, stuck in Europe. You know, they had to go other places or they were stuck. And you know what happened during World War II? Um, not just Jews. Um, there are also issues with the Oriental Exclusion Act and the the, the lack of natural. So Asian Asian people could not naturalize. Uh, if you were if you immigrated Kushal to the United States, there was a period in the United States uh, where people of Oriental heritage, Asiatic people uh, could not become American citizens. If you're born here, you would be an American citizen. But you'd have to be born. Asians could not nationalize. Black people could uh, after, um, you know, equal rights, you know, uh, after the amendments after the Civil War. And then white people could from 1790. So it was like that was the rule that changed in the 20th century. And that changed because, you know, OK, America has these allies like China during World mm -hmm. War, you know, during World War Two. And then later during the Cold War, we're trying to make like, a you know, a show. We're like the side of freedom. How can we be, be the side of freedom? If, you know, we're having these racist immigration policies and all these things and, you know, our allies were getting like kind of annoyed because they're like, you know, you're an exclusionary country and you're like, oh, well, communism will enslave us. Like, great. But like, you know, you're you're kind of an exclusionary country yourself. So America was being pushed in certain ways. The Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Movement of Black Americans was actually part of that uh, because 
the Soviet Union never shut shut up about segregation and and you know uh, stuff in the South. Right. I'm not saying that that happened because of the Soviet Union, but that was part of the reason. Anyway, that's just like a long way of saying history is complicated and there are many factors. Uh, but when you hear the political discourse, it's like reduced down to some simple little thing like, oh, Indian Americans should be thankful to black Americans because they would not be in this country if it were not for black people. That's just false. OK, black people were part of the same broader movement in the 20th century in this country uh, to you know, generate legal racial egalitarianism, right? NAACP, uh, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, uh, had a lot of Jewish founders, you know? So should black people go around every, you know, constantly like thanking the Jews? I don't I mean, I mean, come on. No, of course not. So why is, why is Ro Khanna doing this? Well, it's because of party politics and the Democratic Party, you know? Um, and Vivek doesn't have to worry about that. He's a Republican. There's not that many, you know, Blacks in the in the Republican Party, and there's not that cultural stance, right? So, uh, most most Indian Americans are Democrats, though, and so um, you know you're going to hear things like this from prominent ones. Uh, although I think the rank and file are more ambivalent about what's going on uh, when it comes to racial politics in the Democratic Party, you know, because I do feel that white liberals who dominate uh, who dominate the party in a lot of ways. Um, um, okay, so you know, in terms of there's things related to party politics um, and all that. But I mean, ultimately, like, let me just say, like, affirmative action is not popular in this country. It's not like abortion. Um, the Dobbs ruling, which which uh, where uh, they overturn legal abortion or, you know, the right, the legal abortion on the federal level. OK, was not is not popular. It's it's a problem for for Republicans. It causes fractures in the Republican coalition. This this case is popular. And it causes fractures in the Democratic coalition because the Democrats are saying that, you know, they got to overturn this. They got to do this. They got to do that. That's fine. But they need to remember that um, affirmative action is not popular. Um, there was a, a couple of years ago it was in 2020. I think they tried to put a, a they put a ballot measure for to a direct vote to overturn California's laws, which were put there by ballot measure in the 90s, uh, banning affirmative action in the University of California system. OK, mm -hmm. this California. It failed. It failed. It failed every. I mean, like, and the majority of Asians and Latinos voted against it. Uh, even with with blacks, uh, a, a large minority voted against or voted against. Is like, this like some sort of a referendum? Yeah, yeah. So California has ballot measures, which means that you put it. Yeah, you put a referendum out there on particular issues. All the West Coast states have them actually, uh, and you and like people just vote direct democracy, and so uh, people voted against it. Uh, which shocked, which shocked the state party because it's a one-party state now. Democrats run the state, and they really backed it. But the people are not supportive of this thing because, like, they have a kind of like a reflexive uh, reaction based on you know, it just it seems unjust and unfair uh, to do this sort of thing. If that makes sense. Got it. So, but uh, so how how do you think the Democratic Party and the Brown community in general is going to jostle between this? Because on one hand. Um, you have uh, the Democratic Party where uh, Barack Obama has made a statement, Michelle Obama has made a statement, Joe Biden has made a statement, uh, Kamala Harris has made a statement. I, I hear politician after politician keep reading their written statements, criticizing the Supreme Court. Uh, words like Supreme Court has been taken over by the Republicans, etc., 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 and we are not going to tolerate this. But on the other hand, you have now uh, uh, like 
do you think there is a divide inside the brown community too where maybe people from india might be more sympathetic to the idea of affirmative action because they're used to it in india in comparison to others mm that's an interesting point um no because most of the people from india that i know who are here were not were hurt by it so i mean very few people very few people i mean the, the community the, the indian americans uh ones that are hindu which is you know majority vast, actually good majority there's like a lot of indian americans that say that they just don't have a religion you know so but most of those are from a hindu background too um they will uh they're mostly from the upper caste so uh, i've heard people complain about reservations and on all these things you know uh which you know most americans don't know what they're talking about but you know it's a big deal in india and i know that um so, you know, I don't think I think actually it would, it would cut the opposite way. I mean, there's a lot of people here who came to this country, doctors, for example, because they said that, you know, they, they couldn't get jobs or they were, you know, reservations were affecting their career in various ways. And so they came to the United States. Um, so I don't think that that would be an issue. I think the Indian American immigrant community is reflexively culturally Democrat. Part of it has to do with a massive wave of immigrants that started arriving in the 1990s under Bill Clinton, you know, era of good mm -hmm. feelings there. Um, but uh, even, you know, um, under Bush, you know, um, the idea was, I think Bush overdid it, but the idea was like, you know, it's a, it's a Christian party, you know, Bush was obviously pro-immigrant, uh, uh, the second Bush, but um, he also, you know, stoked the evangelical like identity markers and that makes a lot of Hindus uh, uncomfortable. And so the only party in town is the Democratic Party, you know, um, so now I think it's a little less religiously polarized. And um, I think, you know, we'll see. I mean, there is evidence that um, Asian Americans are tilting back towards the Republicans from like a peak around like pro Hillary peak, maybe like 2016. Um, mm -hmm. I think I think Hillary, she wasn't popular with a lot of people. I think she was popular with Asian Americans because of the name Clinton. A lot of Asian Americans do like the like the Bill Clinton years. It was a, a good time for, I think. You know, it was a time of like not too much to worry about, you know, just Soviet Union was gone. Russia wasn't a problem. China wasn't there yet. So um, I think it's a good time to remember. And I think a lot of Asian Americans, uh, Indian people, brown people, they think the same thing. So um, but I think it's going to be less of an extreme uh, political and ideological divide um, in the near future. I think uh, I think, um, you know, as the Republican Party becomes more diverse, quote unquote, you know, like, um, I think it's going to be less optically toxic, you know, and I think the Democrats themselves engage in like pretty weird identity politics games that kind of marginalize or um, they alienate non-black, non-whites. That's what I'll say. Uh, there are Latino people. I mean, right, they go around calling them Latinx, which like they don't like. It's made up. You know what I'm saying? So the Democratic Party is um, a lot of the party's messaging is dominated by white liberals, you know, um, particularly white liberal professional women, you know. So that's a Democratic with a particular set of concerns that's different than um, I, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, when um, what is it? The Recovery Act or whatever um, was about to be past they were like looking at it um you know within the biden white house people were worried that oh well this money is going to go to construction and all this stuff and that's like gonna you know help white males and not marginalized communities 
the issue here is like to me that just signaled a lack of on the ground connection because you know anywhere in the southwest part of this country you go to a construction site they're speaking spanish right these these are these are these are women i mean like honestly they're they're just women uh who you know college educated women who've never worked outside of these white collar you know and they don't they have stereotypes of what a construction worker is they don't know people who work in construction they don't know people who work in manual labor and you know a lot of those people they're mexican american they're, they're they're immigrants from other places you know so i'm not saying that that's a reason that that act should have been passed i'm saying they have they have like a wrong model of who is who and mm -hmm. i think it does cause problems and tension um so like people who are from um you know latin american background um you know they're, they're they lean democrat not as much as blacks obviously but um they lean democrat but you know, they have complained that, you know, they're the largest minority in the country now by far. But there's like 50 percent more people of Hispanic Latin heritage than there are black Americans now. You know, 50 percent more. Do most people know that? I don't know. I mean, because when we talk about race and the racial, all of this stuff, the Democrats, they focus on blacks. And so um, which I think, you know, people are OK with to some extent, to some extent. But I think it does cause some problems with other minorities in the Democratic coalition that includes Asian Americans. You know, because um, the discussion gets turned into black and white, like it's 1965 again. But I don't understand why affirmative action, the, the discussion, this is just how I look at it as an outsider. When I look at America and Canada, not so much Canada, America in this particular case, where affirmative action is presented in America as you are either against this group or for that group. Why can't it be a more nuanced discussion in America? Like, I get it, but I, I, I don't know. I think reservations, discussions in India, you get out of the social media sphere where, amongst the serious policy wonks. It's actually very mature, the discussion in India on reservations. Even people who oppose it, oppose it in a very mature way. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think the discussion of race in the United States is not mature, subtle, or nuanced. And that's just how it is. And it gets caught up in discussion of race. Uh, so people think of everything is zero sum uh, in this country right now. Also, the rationale from affirmative action is kind of weird um, because we are, you know, our, the legal rationale, the, the original rationale in the 1960s for affirmative action was to, you know, give uh, oppressed people, black people in particular, um, black Americans, descendants of slavery, American descendants of slavery, um, a little bit of a, of a catch up you know, a little bit of a handicap to, to help them out for a little while. Um, it was, in its intent, reparative, like reparations-oriented, like kind of recompense, right? What happened in 1978 is there was a case, uh, which particularly applies to universities, the Bakke case, and basically uh, the Supreme, uh, Justice Powell switched the rationale to diversity instead of reparations, right? And so diversity um, is good and you can maximize diversity. Well, that, that's a very generic thing to say. And now it doesn't apply to black Americans necessarily. It applies to Latinos, some cases Asian Americans for contracting um, and all sorts of things like that. And then you have weird issues. So, for example, at Harvard, um, I don't know if this is totally true. This seems exaggeration. But, but um, about 90% of black Americans are American descendants of slaves. That means for their grandparents, you know, let's stipulate for their grandparents, all four of them are american born and they're descended from american slaves that date to you know before the civil war okay about 90 percent. there was a black um 
there's a black scholar at Harvard who said about 10% of the black people at Harvard are American descendants of slaves. I think that's probably an exaggeration, but it's probably definitely not more than 50%, uh, judging by the latest numbers we have from 2004. And apparently Harvard refuses to release any data or information on the um, national and sub-ethnic makeup of its black students. So who are the who are the majority? The majority are children of Nigerian immigrants, you know, children of the Nigerian doctor, um, children of Caribbean entrepreneurs, these sorts of things, people from Barbados, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, Colin Powell, um, Eric Holder, a lot of prominent black Americans that have been Caribbean in origin, so that's not a big deal. But uh, the point is they're not representative of all black Americans. But, you know, they're black. So if you move from reparations, if you move from re re a reparations model to a diversity model, um, in the reparations model, this is not the reason affirmative action exists. Because if you're a Nigerian professional, uh, your children were not, you know, their ancestors were not enslaved in the United States, right? But if you move to a diversity model, they bring something to the class. They bring something to the workplace just because they have dark skin and they're black, you know. So that's 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 what's looming over it. Um, and that's why it gets really confusing, because what what counts as diversity, what doesn't count as diversity? Um, you know, so, for example. In academia, there's a lot of Asians um, and Asians do not count as diverse. They don't bring anything because there's a lot of Asians. So who cares? You know what you want is so. You know, what you want is some, uh, you know, say a non-binary Latinx person. So, you know, you're going to get someone who looks like a woman is pretty much a woman, but maybe they identify as non-binary. Okay, that's great. And they're Latinx. Okay, so like they're Spanish. That's actually not what, you know, that's not what like you know, Hispanic was supposed to be, but people from Spain count, you know? So um, anyway, I'm just saying that the way that it's executed now with the diversity rationale is much more flexible than the reparations rationale. And that's why you get a lot of weird things. So another aspect that I have noticed in my discussions with people over here is that a lot of the discussion is about, oh, how are you going to go about doing it even if you did it, uh, whether it's reparations or affirmative action, because many and many of these points are very valid. For example, Nigerian-Americans who happen to be one of the richer minority groups in the United States of America as per data. Uh, a very natural question somebody should ask is should they get any reparations or any kind of uh, affirmative action? Because, uh, And the second question is then what, what happens to children from mixed-race mixed groups? Then in the case of mixed-race groups, uh, what if uh, one, of the one of the parents who happens to be of African origin is belonging to the Nigerian American community, for example, or the Caribbean American community. I'm just giving examples, but it doesn't change the reality, don't you think, of the concept of inherited advantage and that African Americans or the children of slaves or who were brought into here, they did have a disadvantage in that sense. And that something has to be done for that community at some level. Well, all right. But so... I think the issue that's fair. Uh, it seems reasonable. But first of all, like, what is, like, you know, how many thousands of years, you know, we have like 160 years now since yes. slavery, you know? Yes, so that's, a, like, that's many, many generations. I mean, the issue is like, so for example, the analogy, what I would, what I would talk about is um, there are people, and I know them, um, I've met them who are descendants of Holocaust survivors. And they don't have, they don't get anything special. You know what I'm saying? And like, how does that affect affect their lives? I mean, their their parents. I mean, my mom was shot. 
by the Pakistan army in 1970. I mean, how does that affect my life? You know, it's not like, so I don't actually believe that a lot of this stuff is as extreme as people say, but, but obviously, um, you know, slavery did have an effect, but, um, the issue here is it's been 160 years and there has to be, uh, an expiration date, you know, uh, on these sorts of things. And with the affirmative action, it was actually not originally seen to be a forever program. And there was a case in, in 2003 where um, Sandra Day O'Connor, she, uh, the justice who wrote the opinion, she like had like basically a 25 year sunset, which would be, you know, soon. It'll be the next, you know, it'll be the next uh, four years. So the point is, um, even if you stipulate that there should be some recompense, like, well, it's happened for, you know what I'm saying? There's a lot of, there's been a lot of, so there's been a lot of payment transfers to the black community, um, you know, because they're poorer on average. Uh, they have received more welfare benefits, more social, you know, um, social benefits and whatnot. So, I mean, I guess the issue is like, well, what more, like, why more? Like, you know, like, isn't there already um, some things like basically the question you're asking is, and the question that's being posed by other people is black Americans, American descendants of slaves should get something very specific based on their particular identity. That's not generalizable. That's not a universe. Because if you're poor, you can get some sort of social benefits in the United States, right? It doesn't matter what race you are. Now, mm -hmm. black Americans on average tend to be poorer, you know, so they get more social benefits. Um, Asians tend to get less. Well, actually, it's complicated because like a lot of immigrants are not. Anyway, I don't want to get into that. But the point is, there's race neutral and there's race conscious uh, policies. Uh, the way we interpret the Constitution is generally you have to be very. We're very very skeptical of race conscious policies. Affirmative action with the diversity rationale was a way around that, right? Uh, but um, in terms of like, should they get something? Um, I think a lot of people who are not black would be yes, but that's not like this is not recurring revenue this is not like a this is not like a perpetual racial subscription to a payment plan from the american government right this is what i'm saying like so let's have a discussion then if you want like a one time lump sum okay give them a one time lump sum okay i don't know but i think what the problem a lot of people have is this is never ending and um we don't live in the america of 1960 anymore uh, when, you know, black people mostly intermarried with black people, white people, you know, most, like there's all sorts of different, you know, combinations now. And, you know, I know, I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, I had an acquaintance, I was looking at his CV because, you know, he was looking for a job and I see, um, I see uh, a fellowship for, uh, for, um, you know, minority scientists and like this white guy. And so I asked his friend, I'm like, uh, can I ask you like, how is he a minority? And my, his friend was like, oh, his grandma's half black. I mean, so he got he got something that was for black people and he does have black ancestry. But is that guy really black? No. So what are we going to start to do? Are we going to um, are we going to start to, um, you know, uh, uh, like photograph people like they do that in Brazil. They do phenotypic, you know. So what I'm trying to say is like. In a multicultural country like America, it gets really, really difficult to actually execute on those sorts of things. Like having simple things works. Um, so maybe like you can, if you can like identify your ancestors in the 18, you know, because like most black Americans, you could identify. It's trivial to identify the genealogy to a slave just because they were property. Does that make sense? 
unfortunately their property so it's not like you know like jewish americans they get here in 1890 and all the records in europe are gone right that is not the issue for black americans for black americans there are records for them because unfortunately they were enslaved so their property so their transaction records uh, you could figure that out so you could validate that for reparations but um you know, I mean, in terms of what we should do for people, what well, I think what we should do for people is give them opportunities to succeed uh, as individuals, you know. Um, and as far as history, history happened um, in various ways to various people. Some people got the, you know, they, they got some gains from it. Some people got short end of the stick. And but we move on um, and universal justice and utopia is never going to happen, you know. Um, I mean, I get, and the question that a lot of, you know, liberals and Americans in general have is like, well, I mean, if black Americans don't have the exact same income as white Americans, right, does that mean that there is racism, you know? Well, I mean, Indian Americans have a higher income than white, white Americans. Does that mean that there's pro-Indian racism, right? I mean, these are, these are the sort of questions that people ask and they wonder. And the reality is, I think you just, people need to like give up on this idea um that all the groups are going to be exactly the same you know i mean i've looked at who the richest people in india are like what's up with all the banias you know is there like racism against non then you know 90 98 of the population is it's not banias right so uh, why well i mean it could be like that group and that community has certain values that prioritize certain things and they go into those fields you know like is that bad like should we stop it i don't know i don't really know you know so, um, you know, Cambodians for a long time owned all the donut shops in California. And that just had to do with like just some initial random thing. So uh, these sorts of patterns um, are outside of the narrative and um, we don't really know how to deal with it if we have a, you know, um, reparation system. And I mean, I don't really honestly think that your guys uh, in India, your guys system is scalable indefinitely because there are intercaste marriages and stuff like that and at some point just everyone's going to have like a benefit which means no one has a benefit but you know um united states is considerably more complicated at this point like you know like even among black americans like almost 20 percent of marriages are with non-blacks among latinos it's 40 percent among asians it's 40 percent and so you have multiple people like all these like you know mixed heritages and to like figure it out operationally is going to be really difficult in my opinion. Yeah, but uh, I'm glad you brought India into this discussion because I think the point is that I think there, I uh, I mean, I've read good research on this as far as India is concerned. So I will first admit that I have not read research on America, so I will never argue on America. But in India, there is enough research to show how reservations have helped at least the scheduled caste and scheduled tribe communities. Like my view has always been very consistent. I've never been, you know, a supporter of uh, OBC or EWS, which is the latest reservation in India. I've never been a supporter of that because those groups, the 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 demarcation and identification was very uh, iffy. But in the case of SCs and STs, you know, we have a historical uh, problem, and I think inherited advantage, uh, inherited advantage was clearly visible in how those communities have suffered. Like most people don't realize in India, the SCSTs are the Avarnas. They were outside the fold of society completely. So they had these problems. And since they got the benefit of reservations, those societies have, have tremendously benefited. 
what i see in america is when it could have been done properly they did not do it properly and now colman told me america did have quotas they removed the quotas now i don't know why they did it and what the reasons were then but the point is that maybe they should have done it before they didn't do it then and i guess it is too complex to do it now because how the hell are you going to apply this system in a in a mixed race society because people are marrying across the races all the time which is in a way a good thing because i guess the american experiment succeeded then right yeah um yeah i mean i i think comparing india and the us you know and people do this um you know isabel wilkerson wrote a book called cast i'm sure you're not a big fan most indians do not seem to be because uh she's trying to understand america and india and using the cast idea and i'm just like this is like america's totally different you know um like in terms of i mean it, slavery was bad you know and like my personal opinion is the way the caste system was operationalized with oppression it was bad but um that doesn't mean that just because they're both bad they're exchangeable right and so we have we have different situations and different circumstances um i think in india um you know this is a continent sized country with thousands of endogamous groups you know so it you know i'm i'm very skeptical of the reservation system but it makes more sense because you're negotiating on a corporate basis almost you know most people are not individuals Uh, or they don't operate in the world as individuals in a lot of the, and not just india but in a lot of these societies like you get jobs through friends and stuff like that you do in the united states too but it's a much more individualistic society um in terms of you may like you know i have friends who've never met their cousins in their 40s and they've never met their cousins right that's just a thing in america you know i would i would say a large majority of people have just never ever met their relatives uh because we don't we don't place the same emphasis on family we place an emphasis on jobs and we'll move for jobs and we move around a lot um and so i think it's a different culture that way it's a very dynamic culture it's driven by market principles um you know my dad always like sometimes like you know people like are like you know from bangladesh my relatives are like oh i want to move to america and he's like great but like just so you know if you don't work you don't eat like this is not this is not a country where you know you you can get a hook up on a job easily and then that's that like if you don't perform um you're out you know um so uh, unless you're um Joe Biden's son no. <laughs> no you know what i'm saying i mean there there's always there's always an elite somewhere that says but um the my point is you know these sorts of systems uh that aim to like you know to fix social problems uh through government have limitations in a country like the US which is so dominated by the market um what i think you know from a conserv- more conservative perspective is you want to do is focus on investment of human capital at the individual level and allow that to mature and grow and let it go you know instead of like having very explicit targets of um you know percentages of black people in this you know percentages of latinx in this and all this other stuff you know uh that sort of system works better when you have uh, and you know more corporatist you know and i don't mean like corporations but i mean like corporatist like you know non individual like like above individual level organizations right it would be like if if the united states had a bunch of guilds that were super important then you would be able to negotiate more with the guilds but we don't and like our unions are very weak right now we've traditionally never had very strong unions compared to say europe but our unions are extremely weak now so um american society is dominated now by um ideological interest groups you know whether you're like christian conservative or 
you know, uh, LG, you know, like a gay, liberal, like these sorts of things. It's not dominated by corporate, uh, I, corporate identities, you know, like, you know, you know, like a union, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, factory workers or something like that as a class. So in Britain, you still have a little bit of that. The trade unions are still uh, very dominant or were actually, no, there's still a big faction in the Labour Party, right? So you have, you have, um, a corporate element to the Brit and the, the Tory party was traditionally rural landowners. Like they, they're not really actually a big deal after, after the Thatcher years, but still uh, my point is the United States, we're all about individual preferences and interest groups. And so um, racializing things can be like a little tricky because yes, you know, of the American racial groups, black Americans in particular have a very cohesive identity, but even black Americans, um, you know, have pretty high outmarriage rate. So if you do like 20% per generation after three generations, like do the math, like the majority of black Americans are going to have recent non-black ancestry and, you know, a large number of quote non-black people are going to have black ancestry as well. And so, um, you know, it's just, it's not scalable in my opinion, the system, but you know, um, it needs to be targeted to people that need uh, not uh, a collective whole because that's just not a way you do it in America. You know, we used to do things like that. So America was a race, was a racist country, like a 1790 naturalization act, America was defined basically on the federal level as a white country. Um, there was issue with free, you know, free blacks in the north and stuff like that. It wasn't resolved, uh, but it was basically a white country. You could naturalize if you're a white male or you could vote if you're a white male. Um, and then in the 19th century, before the Civil War, a lot of states took the vote away from all non-whites. They originally had property qualifications. What they did with them, they swapped out the property qualifications. They put in race qualifications, race and sex. You know, well, it's obviously all men. And then after the Civil War, obviously, uh, you know, blacks got the right to vote and all that stuff. And so we've evolved as a culture and as a society to this idea of like legal racial egalitarianism. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all the groups are going to be exactly the same in every way. Um, So Asian Americans show up here. A lot of Asian Americans show up here with like. So, for example, um, one of the big things is like, you know, black Americans have very, very like low wealth. Uh, The income gap is like it's like 70 percent. Okay, so it's not trivial but it's also like okay it's most black people are not underclass they're not poor um but the wealth gap is huge it's like it's like you know like 20x or something like that and you know the argument is okay well wealth gap wealth compounds over the generations and they didn't have intergenerational wealth but like look i know a lot of asian immigrants and also some latinos who came here with nothing they did not have generational wealth you know and they created a business or they saved for a mortgage and now they're quite well off. And this is not like a nice thing to point out, but it just, the issue here is like consistent pattern of differences in behavior in terms of what you invest in uh, consumption uh, versus production, uh, foregoing short-term consumption to invest into the future and these sorts of things. And these, um, you know, and like within the black communities, there's differences, right? Uh, these Nigerians that came here, I mean, yes, some of them had oil money and are wealthy, but a lot of them are immigrants and they don't have anything. And they end up succeeding because they have different cultural habits and practices that they emphasize in their community, that they enforce in their community. And so I think that that goes to show that um, it's not like some magical white supremacist conspiracy. There, There are serious issues of the choices that you make i mean it's not just united states like you know in fiji some a lot of your listeners might know indians have tended to tended to dominate the economy 
And the Fijians are very straightforward about what the problem is, and it's the Indians don't have enough fun. They're like, you should like party, spend your money, and not work too hard. Like, you're working hard, you're not enjoying yourself, and you're dominating the economy. And that's not cool because it's our country, because they're the natives, you know? Um, but what do you do about these cultural differences, you know? And, you know, Indians know this too. You know, there are certain communities like Bengalis who are not very good at business, to be honest, you know? Why? Well, I mean, if you met some Bengalis, you would understand, you know, shut the shut, shut up and do your math. You know, I mean, it's just like so that's a cultural difference. And that's, it is how it is. And um, is it good? Is it bad? It just is. You know, um, black Americans have traditionally represented pretty well in the arts and entertainment. Um, you know, their culture has emphasized those sorts of things. Uh, not so much in engineering, you know. And yeah, I don't want to get into it. There's a whole literature. John McCord has talked about it you know, about acting white and um, the mockery that academically talented, you know, black kids face within their schools. So the cultural incentives there are off then. I mean, that's the end of, you're not, you're, you're not going to, I mean, not all the world's affirmative action is not going to create, um, you know, black professionals. If so many of these black schools uh, in elementary years are disincentivizing that sort of academic orientation. Does that make sense? Okay, but then what do you make of this whole legacy admissions business? For and and can you explain what legacy admissions are for Indian viewers? Yeah, um, basically, um, legacy admissions are people whose parents and often grandparents went to the same university. So most universities in the United States are not selective. Selective universities have different criteria, and one of them is like, did your parents? go to this university, and they give you a bonus. So the thing with legacies, first of all, legacies are very, very similar to the admitted students. They're a little, little weaker. So, okay, so there's, there's various categories. Like there's athletes, there's legacies, children of faculty, and then, you know, obviously the affirmative action type stuff. Um, and then there's also super rich kids, like Jared Kushner, um, and also like super famous people. Like if you're a Hollywood actor and you're 20 and you want to go to Yale, they'll let you go to Yale usually. You know, so let's set that aside. Then there's like the general category of admittees, Asians, uh, whites without cultural contacts, like those sorts of people. And they have like a certain admissions gauntlet they have to run through. Legacies get a bonus, but um, they're actually much sim more similar to the general you know, general admissions um, pool than affirmative action admit admittees. Like if you just look at their standardized test scores and everything, they're a little weaker, but not that much weaker. But why, why is this, why are they important? Um, what I'm, from what I've heard, um, legacies tend to give more money back to the university when they graduate. They're much more attached to the university as an institution in their family, as opposed to something they're doing for four years to get a job at Goldman Sachs, right? So rich people quote us? Well, no, no, there's no, rich, there's no quotas for rich people. They just buy their way in. That's a different category. That so basically, legacy, you, legacy, if you have the money, you can buy your way into a college. So there's yeah, there's two different like there's let's there's two different categories. Let's separate here. One is like super rich people, like Jared Kushner's family. They're billionaires, right? But they buy a building, they endow a building, they endow a chair, whatever. Or like politically connected, like Macy Biden, like she got into Penn because Joe Biden knew the president of Penn. You know, so like those that's like a hyper elite level. That's rare. Um, you know, when you meet people, when you meet people like that that went to Harvard. They're, it's quite clear they're just dumb. They're, they don't sound like Harvard people. You could just tell, you know. Um, legacies are a much broader category. And so they're people whose parents went to Harvard. So um, their parent is not a billionaire, but maybe they're a surgeon, 
in New York. So upper, upper middle class, you know, they're not going to be giving a $10 million gift, right? But, um, you know, these are people who are going to be upper middle class. They're going to have good jobs, high paying jobs. And basically what they've seen in the data from what I hear is um, that legacy graduates give a larger amount back to the university than like, I'm going to give like a really stereotypical example. Um, if you're the Korean, if you're a child of Korean, like, you know, small business people and you get into Harvard, okay, why are you getting into Harvard? You're getting to Harvard so you can go work at an investment bank or go to medical school. Harvard is, it's a hoop that you jump through. You jump through the hoop. Now, ideally, they want you to be, have like, you know, sentimental feelings towards Harvard, but you have no family legacy of this. Your parents view Harvard as a name that they can say at church, okay? Um, this is different than someone whose father, uh, grandfather, you know, et cetera, went to Harvard. Harvard is part of their family tradition and their culture. And so when the time comes to give your $10,000 a year donation, who is more likely to give that $10,000 a year if they're a doctor? The children of Korean immigrants or the person who's had 150 years of Harvard in the family? The data from what I have heard internally shows that people who, who are legacies uh, tend to give more when that time comes. Now, if you're that child of immigrants and you're a surgeon, um, maybe that $10,000 is going to go to your parents' vacation. They might have other things to do with the money, you know, um, in terms of priorities. So, I mean, I think that's what's going I mean, I know that's what's going on. People have told me, right? With so, ba so basically, this is like how we do it in India where people, this is just a more sophisticated way of doing it, to be very honest. This is like rich people who want to get in. They just buy their way into elite colleges in India too. And uh, but it's very interesting. I was looking at the numbers. So the National Bureau of Economic Research, you know, they looked at Harvard University and they found that 70% of uh, legacy applicants were white. Uh, and even when it came to the recruited athletes, most of them came from higher income households and were white. So I don't get it. Like if white people have this way of getting in, in university. So, so why, why didn't the Supreme court shut this door down? And there were cases in the past, right? Where uh, something like this was dealt with in American history. It's not like this is the first time it has happened. Like I, um, always the case we are talking about is fair admissions versus president yeah. and fellows of Howard college. But there were other cases too, right? Which 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 has uh, looked into this whole legacy admission issue. But because even this judgment, it did not kind of close the door for legacy admissions no, at no. a legal level. Because, because legacy admissions are not they're not um, explicitly about race. Like they're going to be mostly white people because like non-white people did not go to Harvard before the nineteen six like the nineteen seventies really, right? So the the first generation of Harvard. Uh, Asian American, for example, or like just non-white grads uh, are, are entering middle age now. And so their children are starting to apply now. But, you know, it's the number is the number is going to go up in the next generations. Right. So some of it is just this is like uh, this is like saying CEOs are white males. Like 86 percent of CEOs are white males. Let's set the males part aside. I think there's sex differences. 86 percent of CEOs are, are white. But what percentage of people between 55 and 65 are white 
So that's the average age of like a Fortune 500 CEO, you know, Got Fortune it. 500 CEO. And so legacies are subject to the same problem. Now, sports and legacies, they do, they do actually do want like, they don't want too many Asians. Okay. Um, in fact, Asians don't want too many Asians. So if if the school is 70% Asians, Asians don't think it's good of a school. They want rich white people at the school. They want to say that their kids are going to a school with rich white people that they can network with. So like sports, um, from what I've heard and read, it's a well-known backdoor uh, to allowing rich white people, like polo, you know, allowing rich white people into, into the university. It gives them certain contacts. So um, why would you want these wealthy people there? I mean, I'm not justifying it, but, you know, Zuckerberg, for example, is from an upper middle class family, but they're middle class. But at Harvard, he met a lot of very, very rich people. So if you go to Harvard or Stanford, these elite universities, and you want to do a startup, you have a network to raise from the very, very rich, dumb classmates, you know, because uh, they tend to be much dumber, but whatever. Uh, and that's a lot of people are, are supportive of that. Um uh, so in, in terms of legacies, uh, there are reasons that they want them in the mix and that they're used uh, both for donations and also for the student body mix. Um, but uh, I think the issue with the affirmative action is the United States, the law, the Constitution is clear. You cannot discriminate on the basis of race. Right. It, legacies are not addressed in the Constitution. So you would have to I don't know like what the what rationale would be, um, uh, but it wasn't a lawsuit about legacies. And so that wasn't addressed. Right. I mean, if you want to make a lawsuit about it, for, you know, I mean, so one thing is like liberals are bringing this up and like, I can tell you that every single ideological conservative that opposes affirmative action, if the, if, if the, uh, if the cost was to get rid of legacies, they would do it in a second because conservatives are extremely ideologically opposed to non right now, non meritocratic admissions. Okay. Also, most of the people that are white that go to Harvard, they are not conservative. They're rich white liberals. So it doesn't affect conservatives at all. Conservatives, all they care about is like this principle of meritocracy. We've gotten obsessed with it, you know? So um, it, we wouldn't have, a, I mean, conservatives don't have a problem with legacies. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the thing with legacies is it's the connected families in New England and stuff like that in New York uh, that traditionally go to these universities. And you know, it's, a, it's a different crowd than, than the American right. So, so from what I understand is that right now the disproportionate number of white people in the legacy uh, admissions is because of obvious demographic realities. And in the next 20 to 30 years, you will see Asian or Indian uh, parents sending their children using the legacy admission route if it exists. And and if if the legacy admissions still continue and the numbers don't change, then we can say maybe there are some preferences that are being given in the legacy admissions. Otherwise, if it naturally changes with the changing reality of American demographics, uh, it will change. But now one last thing. Now, you and I did a podcast on IQ and race. Uh, it was a sensitive subject that both you and I touched upon. Uh, uh, most people who visit this podcast have heard you, who follow you on Twitter, know your views on uh, IQ and uh, inherit, you know, genetic uh, inheritance and uh, inherited advantages that lead to certain IQ differences. Charles Murray's book, that one chapter, The Bell Curve, exists. And there are many other books that have also been written. There was also a left-wing scientist that you interviewed. And then I read her book too. I forgot the name, so I apologize for that. I'm very bad with names. 
Now she comes to it from a very different view, but she also agrees that the science is uh, indicating certain things. Now, Rasib, if that is the case, that people have been even hard dealt a genetic blow, if that is the case, don't you think it makes an even more case for affirmative actions for those people? No, because uh, uh, look, uh, I am genetically, um, uh, genetically uh, unable to be uh, a professional basketball player. But uh, there shouldn't be affirmative action. I knew we were going to say that. Yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> no, I mean, so so for example, they're doing like they're they're doing various like things to get, diversify the doctor pool. Um, if you're going to go see a cardiologist, you want to see the best doctor possible. Um, and um, what's going to start to happen is um, people will avoid doctors of certain ethnic groups because they're going to be worried that they're a affirmative action because uh, you know affirmative action is fine in the abstract, but when it's your life, all you care about is their competency, right? So. Um, I think like when it comes to university, I mean, to be honest, too many people go to universities already. Too many stupid people that go to universities already. I mean, we should we should like drop the number of people that go to university. There is a movement in the con in this country to allow a lot more jobs to be open to high school graduates, and that's partly because too many people go to universities to get the degree to you know get some stupid job. You know, like you don't you shouldn't need like a university degree to have a job like at the DMV or something. You know. So um, all these like government jobs like are starting to open up to non-university graduates, and I think that's good. So people will not be as motivated to go to university because a lot of these people are not good students. They don't like to read, they don't want to be in school, but they need to like get the certificate. You know, so if you get rid of the the need to get the certificate, they don't waste time, they don't waste money. Um, universities have like less demand for their product, but hey, that's their problem. You know, but in any case, my point here is universities are there to teach to educate those who have the interest and the will and also, you know, train professionals uh, that serve the public. And so you have to have the abilities and the skills like this is not charity. Right. So, yeah, um, I do think that, you know, the IQ stuff is an issue um, for selective universities, not for unselective, which is most I went to an unselective. Well, mostly unselective university, but, um, you know, but you have to be anyway. The point is, like most people, if you want to go to college, if you want to save the money, you can pay in the United States. That's fundamentally the truth. Right. Um, this is only like really, really, really selective universities. Now, the issue um, and this is a real issue. Is um, we haven't talked too much about the fact that Harvard has a massive endowment and they want to keep their central role in American culture. But the real big issue here is um, especially for the Democratic Party, Har Harvard educates the elite politicians of the party um, and just kind of like the professional class leadership class, like the elite journalists, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and stuff like that. So if you have no very few black graduates of this university, that's going to be a problem populating the elite. I think the solution there, I mean, the Republicans are not as elitist about this. Like, you know, there are a lot of people who went to state universities in the Republican Party, partly because it's just like, you know, Ivy League is, is more liberal, right? So I think the solution to this is not to, my opinion, is not to do affirmative action to Harvard. It's to de-emphasize the importance of Harvard. Once you de-emphasize the importance of Harvard, then it's not as big of a deal. Right, right now, the problem is if, if only 1% of Harvard graduates are black, like that's going to be a major problem for the you know elite pipeline. Uh, and that's what they're worried about. But just make it less about Harvard and then you can diversify. You know? That's my opinion. That's interesting. So big... Uh... I think India will be very happy if Harvard is less important because Harvard spends way too much time in, uh, you know, on Indian affairs and uh, most of the dirty shit that happens in India, they eventually trace it back to somebody from Harvard. It's very interesting. But I, 
one last question so it's very true that you said you just can't do race based things in america it's illegal and how the hell are these people because it's a podcast about brown things how the hell are these people saying caste is immut- uh, immutable and caste based things should be looked at isn't then the logic applicable to caste or we are the special well, ones all right i mean so the issue is like it depends on how you interpret um how you interpret the um uh, the equal i think equal protection clause in the constitution uh, republicans like the right conservatives tend to interpret it as you know colorblind and um i think like liberals have now interpreted it as non-colorblind I, you know they have a they have a way but um basically the diversity so basically i think the argument for affirmative action not the argument not basically it was the argument is a diversity argument so that basically means that you're not discriminating um you're actually improving the workforce and making everything better by having diversity so that you know i'm not a lawyer but it's something like that where they kind of just dodge it um but uh, you know, plain reading of the Constitution would be that it's not legal, is what conservatives would say, right? So as far as caste goes, uh, yeah, so like it's just the same thing in terms of look, the casting is very straightforward in my opinion. I think the casting is that uh, um, you know liberals are running out of marginalized groups, and so you know they they want to protect Dalits like me. Yeah. So yeah, I identify as a Dalit. Don't laugh; it's not funny. You know, you do, yeah, uh, LGBTQ, uh, whatever is that D, Dalit, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm a queer Dalit. No, I identify yeah. as a queer Dalit, you know, but so they're running, they're running out of identity groups, and India has this like complicated caste system. So that's a that's a really good thing for a civil servant. Like now they have like more stuff to do. They can like ask the Indian American students at the university, what's your caste, you know, and uh. And like, you know, they'll have like some Indian American student put down Brahmin, B-R-A-M-I-N. You know, it's like, it's like these people don't know. You know what I'm trying to say? Like these kids don't know anything about any of this stuff. A lot of them don't. Um, but, uh, but it, you know, they, they think that this is a, another angle. Uh, and like, it's not going to stop with caste. They'll just go into like different sorts of things. Like, you know, it's like an oppression. There's no limiting principle to this sort of division and, uh, you know, apportionment of, um the oppression points you know so yeah that's why they're doing it um because they can you know but. yeah it's interesting is all i can say uh everything in america is always very interesting for me as an outsider who comes every year now and just looks at things as an outsider and it's like how how how, how discussions go around over here and uh, I think this affirmative action uh, thing and the caste attacks is going to is going to do uh, one thing. It is going to make many more brown people uh, Republicans than ever in their past. This is this is how I see it. But mm-hmm. let's see what happens. But yeah, we'll we'll close it at that. So you know, to now all the brown people will listen to this. Uh, I have a significant listener base in North America, especially. So now they're going to listen to you and then they'll, they'll finally like you. Uh, you know, you, you, you diss on Hindu nationalists all the time for a change. They'll like you. <laughs> you know, look, I don't like this on Hindu nationalists. The problem is like, you know, I just like low IQ people don't talk to me, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's not about your religion or your race. It's about your like low IQ, you know, and just, I'm sorry, so, I'm a bigot. Yes, yes. Uh, so Razib is very bigoted, guys, as you can see. But it's it's always a pleasure talking to you, buddy. And uh, right. hopefully, uh, hopefully, we'll catch up again in a while.
for sure bro yeah all right guys we'll uh, we'll uh, close today's chat once again go and subscribe to rajib's substack he writes very interesting essays on his substack also a lot of podcasts so you can go and check them out as far as i'm concerned you know the drill like the video subscribe to the channel if you're an audio only listener please leave a rating on spotify itunes google podcast audible amazon wherever you listen to the damn audio file and if you can please become a member of my podcast on youtube patreon fanmo or by the merch i'll see you guys next time until then take care bye